Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Meat and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meat and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of, you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chef's grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really, she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia's Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Joel Gameron, National Chef for Sir Latab and host and executive producer of the FYI cooking show, Scraps. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Joel about the food waste crisis, and how to tackle it. Scrap Season 2, and his new cookbook, Cooking Scrappy. We'll also hear Joel's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're following up on a subject we only touched upon in episode 26, food waste. While sustainability and food waste are not topics generally associated with Julia Child, her focus was encouraging people to learn to cook and eat better food, they can be thought of as two sides of the same coin. Being engaged about what you eat and where it comes from is the first step in sustainable practices. Julia's reverence for understanding what makes for good food and where it comes from is part of what today's sustainability movement is all about. Both ideas value understanding the food production process, including focusing on food producers' methods and standards. Both require us to more consciously and responsibly think about how these activities impact our lives and the planet. This more careful attention helps us to begin to address waste and eliminate bad practices. Someone who shares Julia's passion for motivating and teaching people to cook and understand where good food comes from is Sir Latab's national chef and television personality, Joel Gameron. Joel is passionate about teaching people to cook more wisely and sustainably, in particular, by recognizing how many good things often go to waste. It takes a trained chef's eye to realize one man's garbage is another woman's vegetable stock. As a creative force behind the television series Scraps on FYI, and a new cookbook fittingly titled Cooking Scrappy, which is all about how to make delicious dishes from what most of us toss out, Joel is a passionate advocate for educating people about the global food waste crisis and easy ways we can eat what is most often wasted. With sustainability in the environment more and more on people's minds as we experience the growing effects of climate change, it's a good time for all of us to get more engaged in combating food waste and cooking and eating more sustainably. It's great to have Joel on the podcast to share his passion for turning scraps into culinary gold. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you, Todd. So thrilled to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. So food waste has been a growing concern and increasing fascination of mine. 
So I wanted to talk about how to, how do we tackle this enormous challenge? What what's the magnitude of the food waste crisis? Well, the magnitude is out of control. Um, in the United States alone, we waste more food than anywhere else in the world. So um, we are not the greatest at it here. Food waste itself makes up 20% of the global warming. So uh, it is a massive part of the problem. And 40% of the food we buy hits the trash. So um, it is a lot, a lot of food, millions and millions of pounds, and uh, something that we definitely need to get behind. So, so that sounds like a massive uh, scope of the problem. And obviously, you mentioned that global warming is one reason. But how do you characterize why we should care that it's such a big problem? Why, why, why does it matter? Is it just global warming? No, no, no. That's a really good question. Um, food waste is about wasting money. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. If you like money, you should care about food waste. Uh, one out of eight Americans today go to bed hungry. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And meanwhile, almost half the groceries we buy is getting tossed. So it's way more than environmental. It affects your wallet. It affects your neighbor. Um, and it's something that really affects our communities. So it, it's a huge, huge deal. And, and do, you, do you think it's a problem that's actually grown out of privilege and that, you know, come 70, 100 years ago, we just didn't have that issue because we didn't have so much food and affluence? It's a really, yeah, that's a good point, Todd. Yeah, so I dug into a lot of this as I kind of started to come up with the show and the book and all that good stuff. And you're totally right. About 70, 80 years ago, and if you think about your grandparents, they are always saying things like, we would never waste it. This would never be tossed away. We would never put this down the drain or we would never put this in the, in the trash. And it's because they were raised uh, from a place where every dollar, every cent um, And so that stale bread, you know, three days later is going to thicken your soup. Um, you know, if you have leftovers, it's going to be repurposed. But today, because uh, everything is so, uh, I guess, easy to come by and uh, commodity-based and it's huge, um, it, we kind of forgot those roots and you're right, it is kind of a source of privilege, but more and more we're seeing people value um, what we have. Yeah, no, I'm really struck by that my grandmother, who was raised during the Depression and always sort of suffered from those effects, even though she didn't end up being poor at all, I always say she was like the ultimate environmentalist. She just didn't know it because her waste was all, as you said, it was about saving money, not climate change or the environment or sustainability. But it's the same principle, right? Totally, totally. And I, I also, I mean, just from a cooking perspective, it's saving flavor. I mean, you know, one of the uh, first things they teach us at culinary school is the fact that onion peels in your stock gives it this really rich umami deep, rich flavor, and uh, not to throw it away, but we probably forgot what onion peels taste like because no one cooks with it. So it, it's not just a problem, you know, environmentally, community-wise, but it's also a problem because it's affecting your cooking. Well, let's switch to that, and because and obviously your focus as a chef is, is, is how chefs are de dealing with it and how chefs often come at it from quite a different perspective than maybe home cooks or, or um, amateur cooks. So how are chefs tackling the food waste crisis? You know, chefs, like I said, were kind of brought up to tackle it. In, in restaurants, um, you know, every, every scrap you throw away, every carrot peel, every chicken bone, um, is profit. You know, the profit margins in restaurants are not great, as you know, Todd. And so, um, you know, every everything needs to be put to use. Everything can be potentially more money to help your restaurant. So, chefs, this is not a new way of thinking about food. My buddy Jacques Papin, Julie's buddy too, says, you know, Joel is not cooking in a new way. He does not have a new scope. He's cooking the right way. Um, what I realized is something that Julia realized is that chefs know about this, just maybe like chefs knew about French cuisine back in the 50s and 60s. But home cooks do not. They were never taught this. And, and like we talked about, the generation was skipped. So a lot of people don't know what to do with stale bread. They don't know what to do with brown bananas. They don't know how to make their own stock. And I really wanted to create a platform um, that made it approachable for the, 
for our home cooks specifically to tackle the problem? Is there a much bigger part of the problem than restaurants? Interesting. And and I was thinking about that. I, ironically, my grandmother, who, who I was just talking about, also ran a restaurant. So the profit um, thing definitely came from there. But I like your example of sort of for chefs, it's really this like intersection between flavor and profit. They they both go hand in hand. They're both incredibly important, particularly if you're a restaurant chef now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I also dug into the numbers a while ago and restaurants and retail, I think, makes up about 20% of the food waste crisis. Uh, home households are about 65%. So um, it's much more of the food waste is coming from houses than from, from restaurants. Wow. I, I think that I'm so glad you said that because to me, if I had guessed, I, I think I assume, oh, gosh, the restaurants meant to throw out so much, particularly the grocery stores, like all those deli counters in grocery stores. But you're saying including the kind of prepared foods and all the, the grocery retailers that need to you know throw things out before they expire, they're still not accounting for the majority? Exactly. And, and it's even not the majority, you think about the food uh, production. Right, all the food that gets wasted in the farm, and all the food that gets wasted in spoilage. You know, you go to these grocery stores at late night after midnight. They're taking all the, you know, quote unquote expired food off the shelves, and all the ugly looking food off the shelves. Households still waste more than all that. Wow, that that's really shocking, and I think that shifts. And is is that where your sort of passion for talking to the average person and the average home f- cook came from? Because that it, it's such a bigger part of the overall problem. Yeah, totally. You know, being the national chef for Silatab, we run eighty two cooking programs across the country. We, we taught over six hundred thousand home cooks last year how to cook, and it was in a class where I saw all these home cooks throwing away their shrimp shells, throwing away their cucumber seeds, and all this profit, all this money down the drain, um, and also just thinking about the environmental impact. So for me, the home cook is where I'm really focusing. You know, all my chef buddies, everyone that I know in the industry thinks I'm, I'm, you know, (laughs) they think it's kind of laughable because they know all this stuff. You know, Julia knew this stuff. You were taught this. But um, since the majority of people do not live in, or work in the restaurant industry or did not go to culinary school, um, they just didn't have the, uh, the tools that, you know, at their hands to be able to tackle this. And it's not their fault. But the first thing I'd say is don't feel bad about it. Don't feel bad that the U.S. is the, is the most wasteful place in the world. We can tackle this one step at a time. But you just didn't know. It's time we got woke, I guess. Well, then let's switch to that. I think that that's really a revelatory thing to think about. And if we're talking about the biggest audience, which fortunately, I think our listeners mostly fall into that, that category. I think that's the focus is what what can people at home start to do? Because I my guess is a lot of people are throwing away brown bananas or other things out of their fridge, because they're concerned about, you know, uh, food poisoning or eating things that might make them sick and or or is that what you think is going on, or is it it's one part of the whole equation? I think it's one part of the whole equation. Um, I mean, Todd, we're both guilty of seeing something in the fridge, thinking it looks a little sketchy, maybe smells a little weird, and you toss it. And um, As humans, we have built-in sensors to know when something uh, is not good, whether it's fuzz on top of some jam, that, uh, that's been in the fridge for way too long or that chicken dish you served on Friday and now it's Wednesday and it smells a little off. We, we have that. We're, we're just out of touch with it. So the first thing I say is to try and get back in touch with that and trust your senses. But what my first tip is to home cooks is, is not even in their own kitchen. It starts in their grocery store. And a lot of people think that you know grocery stores don't carry fish bones or carry chicken feet or the bottom stock of a broccoli because grocery stores don't want to or can't because it's illegal. It's not. The reason why they don't carry it is because no one wants it. If they put, you know, broccoli stems out there, um, no one would buy it. 
And so the first thing I tell home cooks is to go to your grocery store and to ask for the whole animal, to ask for the whole vegetable. You know, when you start seeing carrots without their tops, that's a huge myth, you know? But we, we see that more and more. In fact, we see butternut squash without their seeds and without their peels already chopped up in a cryovac plastic container. So it's moving in the wrong direction. And what we have to do as consumers is the first step is tell our retail friends and our grocery stores and all those good people uh, that we want it differently. So that's number one. Number two is when you're in your own kitchen, the first thing I would say is don't think you need to use everything right at that second. I think, you know, if someone's um, making banana bread, and they have tons of leftover bananas that they know are going to go brown. I'm not saying they should make banana pancakes right there and then, you know, or make another loaf. I'm saying utilize your freezer. Realize that these are ingredients that you can use in three, four, five, and even six months. And it doesn't have to happen in the moment. I think people get really overwhelmed when they're feeling shrimp. And they think about the message I say, which is, don't throw away those shrimp shells. And they feel instantly guilty. And that's mm. not, you know, that's not the point. The point is, you can use that for a future meal and stretch it out. So the freezer is your friend, big time, when it comes to cooking scrappy. That makes sense. So the, those are the kind of two big tips, one sort of at home and one when you're out and about. Yeah, and, you know, I always say I have a scrap bowl that's divided, so I put a little piece of tin foil inside a bowl so I can put, you know, savory scraps to one side, whether it's parsley stems um, or mushroom bottoms or whatever on one side, and then if I have fruit scraps and sweet scraps, it goes on the other side. So, you know, just a way to have future ingredients, future mise en place, if you will, um, ready for me when I need to make a soup down the line or when I want to make a sauce and enrich it. So, um, you know, to make sure that we treat those ingredients with respect as well, not just toss them in the trash. And what's your point of view on composting? Do you think that's, I mean, I assume you think it's a good thing, but do, do people maybe rely on that? Oh, I'm composting, so I don't really need to worry about whether I'm chucking stuff in the freezer or the, or the, yeah, um, I have a pretty strong view on composting. Yeah, no, that's why I'm asking you. I figured you did. <laughs> so here's my thought, and, and this is I'm not sciencey at all, so I'm going to break this down the best I can. If you have a backyard and you take your scraps and you chuck it in the backyard, I'm totally cool with that. That's awesome. It's going to compost. It's going to... Uh, eventually kind of melt into your ground and richen the soil, and it's going to be fantastic. If you're a farmer and you have tons of scraps and you throw them in the field, same thing. I'm cool with that. It's, it's all good. The problem where composting doesn't work is when a compost goes into a giant pile. So when we put compost in our bins and the city comes and picks it up, what people don't realize is they put it in giant mounds of food waste. And when you have a giant mound, the layer on the bottom, or the second to the bottom, doesn't breathe. It doesn't get the oxygen it needs because there's so much other food on top of it. So it creates methane gas. Um, and that's what's really harmful to our environment. So for a lot of people, if you're composting at home or in small batches, it's perfect. But if you're not composting in small, small batches, you live in a city and you don't really know where your compost is going, you should look into it because it could be doing more damage than you think. And so you're saying it kind of is the same danger of methane production, just as I, I know, I think a, a lot of people or maybe people who have started to get woke on sustainability are very conscious of the issue with methane from feedlots and large scale agricultural um, or particularly meat production. But I think you're saying even if it's compost that doesn't have meat in it that's still doing this, it's producing a similar effect. The exact same effect. Yeah, totally. Wow. 
which is crazy because you think compost is, you know, it kind of got this whole hippie movement thing, and it's like, you know, it's it kind of come on as it's, it's doing a lot of good, and it is if you're doing the compost. But if your city's doing the compost, you got to look into that because uh, I've been to some compost pile and it's crazy. And and what 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 what, te- what usually or what do cities who are trying their best do with the compost? Are they trying to sell it on to farmers as well, but they can't do it fast enough? Or yeah, exactly. So cities who are doing it best are teaming up with companies, um, and they're giving them their food waste to turn into energy or into, like you said, more compost that farmers can buy and and help kind of enrich in their field. Um, they're teamed up with community gardens and dispersing it there. So places that are doing it right, like I lived in Brooklyn for eight years, and all of our compost would go to a ton of our community gardens. And, and that way, it's spread out evenly. It's not in giant piles. So cities that just take it basically to a food waste dump is where it gets a little bit tough. So I guess you're saying that if, if you want to get the most effect out of the idea of composting, if you can do it sort of individually and for your own garden or or lawn, it's going to be more environmentally friendly than than doing it through a citywide service. Exactly, Doug. But still, the best but, way to combat you know the environmental issue, the money issue, the flavor issue is you got to cook it. You got to save it and you got to cook it. But if you but if a second second place winner would be to compost on a small scale level. So let, because now I'm feeling very guilty about what I thought I was doing a great job with citywide curbside composting. And, and now, so it sounds like one of the things that we also need to look at is just the sort of overbuying syndrome or not planning well, where you look in your fridge and think, golly, all these things have, let, let's just assume for the sake of argument, truly have gone to waste or beyond sort of salvageable in certain situations. Do you also focus on in your classes at Sur La Table or when you have a platform of sort of advising people how to even shop smarter so that they don't end up with too much excess? Yeah, I think that's harder to tackle than arming people with the tools of how to make the most of all the access they bought. So um, I've done lots of classes and, and talks about how to grocery shop, but it doesn't really matter. Grocery stores are like, you know, um, casinos. They know how <laughs> we think. They take full advantage of us. And when we're there and we're in the way, of, you know, the, the checkout line, we always grab four or five more items. So I'm more concerned with when you get all that back to your house, how do you save half of it? Because right now, half of it's not being saved. So how do you make the most of it? How, instead of going back to the grocery store twice in one week, you keep it to once a week to the grocery store, and you really, really take full advantage of what's in your fridge. Our CEO at Sterling Cobb grew up um, with these things called fridge parties. And every Sunday, his dad would open the fridge and use whatever they had left over and turn it into something crazy, like a Frankenstein meal. But they loved it, and it was exciting, and it cost nothing because they didn't have to go back to the grocery store or order in pizza or whatever. Um, they made the most of what they had. So I'm more focused on that as opposed to kind of giving people uh, my thought in grocery stores because it's just too big of a, a topic for me to tackle. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, that's a perfect segue to what we're going to talk about after the break, where we get into all the different creative ideas that you have through your TV series and your new cookbook. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We're going to talk to Joel more about that after the break. We'll be right back. It's often assumed that any recipe in Julia's Mastering the Art of French Cooking will be complicated. But that's just not true. With fall in full swing, it's the perfect time of year for baking with apples. Julia's recipe for a classic French apple tart involves only about five ingredients, and you can make the sweet short crust pastry dough ahead of time using a food processor. Those instructions appear in later editions of Mastering the Art, like the 40th anniversary one. The pastry can even be kept in the freezer for several weeks. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JuliasKitchenPod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on some of the best milled flour for fall baking. 
Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Joel Gameron about his quest to stop us from wasting good food, both as national chef for Sir Latab and also as host of Scraps on FYI. All right, so Joel, your TV series, which you help create and host, Scraps, it has a surprising executive producer, at least to me, and Katie Couric, as well as a collaboration with Sir Latab. So how do all those different pieces fit together? Yeah, so I mean, I think Sir Latab and Julia Child had a very similar um, you know, purpose in life, which is to empower people in the kitchen and get them more confident. And being the national chef of Sir Latab, I've been... Uh, a spokesperson for Sterling Pop. And I went on Katie Couric's show when I was 26, so about eight years ago. And uh, we just hit it off. And Katie and I became buddies. She, she wanted to cook more. Um, she felt like food was a huge growing topic, which, as you know, Todd, it is and was. Um, and so she wanted to cook more. She came to classes at Sterling Pop. She had me on her show more. And we even came out with our own little web series um, about kind of cleaning out your fridge and, and really simple recipes to arm people with. You know, I think Katie has a really similar ethos to Julia in the sense that she wants to break down the intimidating and the scary, whether it's news or, you know, a, a Coco Vaughn, um, to something digestible and something relatable for the American public. And so um, we hit it off. And I told her about this idea. She loves, loves it. Um, she's obviously behind anything that's um, helping the environment, helping communities, helping save money. And uh, she helped me develop it. I, I can tell you, Todd, I pitched this to about, uh, I don't know, 50 networks for about two and a half years before Katie signed out as an executive producer. No one bought it. The second Katie came on, it got bought. Well, that, that's a great kind of support to have. So tell us what's in store for folks, or if they haven't seen the show, how, how does it work and what's in store for this season? Yeah, yeah, totally. So season one last year was on FYI, um, which is a smaller network, uh, and it did really well. And people really related to it, which was great. So now it's going to be on A&E, um, which is kind of the, the mother network of FYI. And the show itself is me on a road trip. I have a VW 1963 van named Pippi because she's red and she's got freckles, like Pippi Longstocking. Uh, and she, she was a truck that was rotting um, in a farm, at, at like barn, for the past 50 years. And she represents the food waste movement. She was a scrap. You know, no one was looking at her. She was totally overlooked. And now she's the symbol of the food waste movement. I turned her into a kitchen. I travel across the country in her. I meet up with the chefs um, across the country who are food waste minded and championing this idea of using everything. And from city to city, we throw a meal shocking locals with all the different food scraps that you would normally think of as trash. Uh, and we put together a badass meal for them. And is that one of the ideas behind the show through introducing them to Pippi and the people, the different chefs you meet who are sort of at the vanguard of this and very passionate about it to kind of inspire people to try more and to know what to put in their freezer? Exactly. Yeah. The idea of the show is that you walk away thinking, I have never cooked the top to leaf. I've been told to throw those away my whole life. Corn cobs? After the kernels are off, those make really good stock. I can make sauce with those. So to have those moments um, is the goal of the show. And, you know, I, I break it down to as simple as in season two, we're going to have animation. I mean, there's going to be little uh, cartoons about how, you know, the, the food waste system works and how, how it kind of spell it out for people. So to make it as simple as possible. And uh, are there any key highlights of, or, or so, so how many episodes are in, coming up in season two? We have uh, 10 episodes and one one hour uh, scrappy Thanksgiving special, which oh. my belief is the day after Thanksgiving is the most wasteful, trashiest of the year. Um, so how can we stretch the Thanksgiving dinner 
um, through the whole weekend. So you don't have to go back to the grocery store, which is a really fun episode. Yeah, no, I actually really enjoy that whole process, although of eating the Thanksgiving leftovers. But it is getting like one one of our traditions, definitely moving toward turkey tacos by the end when everyone, you know, you have to you have to disguise it from being turkey anymore. And then it's still palatable. You you nailed it. Todd. I mean, I think we're all day one. We're all cool with some more stuffing and turkey. Day two and three, we are ready for a new cuisine. <laughs> Exactly. So you, so you can go, th- go through the different ethnicities and things like that. Do you go to 10 different cities then with P- Pippi? Yeah, so 10 different cities. Um, we go to LA, San Francisco, Montana, Chicago, Detroit, Louisville, Nashville, Connecticut, Boston, and Vermont. Um, I will say some of the big highlights is Jacques Pepin in Connecticut. Um, so Julia's ex-partner was uh, is now partnered up on a Scrappy episode, which is really cool. He taught me Wonderful. more than I would ever know. Um, and we're, we're meeting up with Brooke Williamson, who won Top Chef in L.A., yeah. um, with Jason Bissonette, who does Toro, and the James Beard winner uh, in Boston. So just amazing chefs. Um, but one guy I think that's really looking forward to and the premiere of the show is the chef Eduardo Garcia. Have you ever heard of him, Todd? Mm, not off the top of my head, no. No? Yeah, a, a lot of people haven't. And um, he's based in Montana. And he was out hunting. Um, and unfortunately, he, he saw a bear that was dead. And he turned over the bear. And he didn't realize it was on a power line. And so he shocked himself and blacked out in the middle of the wilderness. Um, and then he had to hike five miles back to a hospital. He unfortunately lost his arm, all of his ribs on his right side. And he cooks one arm uh, with a hook. And uh, he's incredibly gracious, so talented. But to me, he embodies the scrap movement of, again, what Kippy embodies, what every ingredient embodies, which is maybe you think uh, you don't have something. Maybe you think you don't have an arm, but he makes the most of it, just like the scrap movement makes the most of it um, and turns it into something beautiful, which is an incredible, inspiring chef. Wow, that is a story that you are not going to forget. Wow. And so did Pippi survive this whole journey back and forth across the States? She's a little bit of a museum piece. Um, she drives, but the big question is, do I actually drive her 3,000 miles across the country? And the answer is no. Um, a lot of the times I push her <laughs> down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> and then we roll cameras real quick, and it looks like I drove into it. Um, but no, Pippi got sick on episode eight. And we did a lot of towing and pushing to get her through. But uh, at the end, she made it past the finish line. Well, well, that's what counts. As you said, with reuse, it's not everything's perfect. Exactly. So I was thinking while you were talking of some things I've learned, but I think I picked them up more specifically um, from just looking at your new cookbook. So let's switch gears and talk about cooking scrappy, because I feel like some of the things you mentioned are actually um, in there, because I think because I was thinking, oh, I'm definitely doing the corn cob thing and making corn chowder with that kind of enhancement. And it, is that a cooking scrappy? Yes, absolutely. I have a shrimp shell and corn cob chowder, and this thing, Todd, just makes your eyes roll back in your head. I mean, it's unbelievable. But cooking scrappy, you know, I never wanted to write a cookbook. I'm not a good writer. I can talk well, but I can't write well. Um, and one of the guests in season one, Mark Bitterman out of Portland, uh, really convinced me to, to do this and to tackle this. Um, I really wanted it to be as approachable as possible. I think with a topic of food waste, it can get soapboxy really fast uh, and you can lose people. So the recipes in Cooking Scrappy are stuff we know. It's lobster rolls, but using the lobster shells in the butter of the lobster roll to make it even more lobstery. You know, it's chocolate chip cookies with stale potato chips you have left over and you put them in the cookie dough so that it's got this crunchy, 
sweet, you know, salty thing going on. So it's really approachable scraps that everybody has um, and recipes that we're familiar with because I didn't want to scare anyone away. I think cooking with cherry pits is already scary enough. Well, I think from having looked at the book, it turned out really great, and it's certainly well-written, so maybe maybe you secretly had some help, but in, in the end, I think it's really easy to follow and, and, and very approachable, and, and I also think every chapter has aha moments. I think some things are a little more involved, or you think, how would I exactly do that? But I think every part has something you're like, oh, that's so simple, I could do that, or I want to try that. Thank you, Todd. And, and if you flip through it, you'll notice that there's tons of photography. Uh, the photographer, Jim Hankins, he's amazing. But our goal was, how do you make something that everyone sees as trash, right? It's maybe a fish skeleton. How do you make that look appetizing? So we have giant pictures of the scraps. And then under those pictures, we tell you all the different things you can do with them. You know, in a fish skeleton, you can make fish stock. But you can also fry the bones and make a really good bar snack. So it's kind of all the applications and really trying to put the scraps up on a pedestal. No, I definitely think you've succeeded. And I think for anybody who is passionate about sustainability and reducing waste, it, it's kind of a must have because I don't think I've ever seen a book like it that's quite quite as helpful, like take you by the hand guide to how you you know, kind of begin to tackle these things. And, and just going back to what you said before, a lot of it's not just focused on, you know, not wasting things. It's, you know, you talk about how all, of, not all, but well, maybe all, many of these things certainly enhance flavor and you end up with something that, that's that much more enjoyable. Totally. And it's, and it's also about your equipment. You know, Scrappy is, um, you know, taking a Le Creuset pot, flipping it upside down and using the bottom as a piece of stuff. You know, you think you have a pot, but you really have a pizza stone. You know, I when I was in college, I made uh, bread in my dorm room. I didn't have any mixing bowls. I took an old football helmet and cleaned it out and uh, used that as a proofing bowl and then cooked it in the commissary. So Scrappy is, you know, again, just this mentality of using everything you have, whether it's one arm, whether it's uh, a recycled car, whether it's a brown banana, whether it's a piece of sheet metal instead of a sheet tray, and trying to get from A to B. I think that's a great message. So what do you have a, a kind of go-to or dish that you find that you make at home all the, all the time that came out of the sort of putting Cooking Scrappy together? What, do you have like a favorite one or two? Oh, there's two. I have too many. Um, I will say... I make more carrot top sauces, whether it's pesto, whether it's uh, zoos, whether it's, you know, salsa verde than anything. If I don't have something carrot top in my, in my fridge, it's very unlike me. Um, I use, I don't know if people know this, but when you drain white beans or chickpeas out of the can, the liquid in the can, you can whip up like egg whites. And I make um, really good aioli creamy sauces. Um, I'm not vegan, but it, it makes it vegan. Um, and I think it gives it a really uh, rich kind of velvety texture. So we're a big aquafaba family, my wife and I. We, we never throw away that liquid. And there's always kind of a creamy stuff going on somewhere in our kitchen. Well, that makes sense to me because isn't the vegan, I was seeing that somewhere where there's vegan meringue and it that's what it's made from, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, the first time I showed my wife, she thought it was the grossest thing in the world. She, you know, I, I poured <laughs> it out of the jar. We whipped it up with some garlic and chives and, you know, all the stuff. We were making like a ranch. A bunch of people were coming over to watch the football game. And she's like, there's no way we're serving, you know, this sludge to people. And she tried it and she thinks it's better than like whipping up egg yolk and emulsifying it. I mean, it's better for your cholesterol. It's free. Um, and now we're kind of addicted to it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that I have to try just for it, for the sense of it, but it, it seems like one thing that does really help, although you can use a football helmet, if you have one that, you know, having things like a food processor and a blender or a, a, a hand mixer, all of those things are really helpful in this process. It's a really good call out. Todd. Yeah. Those, those items, um, transform scraps into something edible. So you're 100% right. I mean, you need to have a well-equipped kitchen. 
Um, but yeah, those can make a huge difference. Blender in general. I mean, we use the blender. It sits out on our countertop and it's a big KitchenAid, you know, behemoth of a blender, the pro line, which we love, but, uh, we use it every day. So it makes sense. Do you have a favorite strap that you guys use? That is an excellent question that I was ill-prepared for. I might have to come back for you on. I think we go through so many carrots. I Well, one thing I've stopped doing is a washing and peeling carrots, uh, w- particularly when I know they're good ones. Yeah. They're really not that dirty. And, and also, um, you just don't need to a lot of the times, especially if we get them from the farmer's market. So that that's one that I try to do. Um, Todd, do you make your own stock? sometimes not all the time we eat less and less meat so um we don't tend to have that around but certainly my mother-in-law is a stock fiend and basically kind of gets a little bit um nervous if she doesn't have a stock pot on and certainly any anyone who's lived in a house with a stock pot and the utility of the stock pot of one of the great things you can do if you, you don't know if you make your own stock and usually in our house it's it's chicken stock which is often poultry stock because it may get since we're not running a restaurant it may get polluted with a duck carcass or something like that but once you strain it you can then freeze it and if you freeze it in ice cube trays and cubes those little individual cubes make it really easy to defrost and really easy to use it even for small things or you dump the whole tray in for a big thing Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, go home, make chicken stock, you know, follow my recipe or the billion recipes online and put it side by side, do a blind taste test of stock you buy at the grocery store. It's a game changer. It doesn't taste the same. It tastes so much fuller, so much more robust and deep. Um, But there's also a mouthfeel. And that's the difference between good cooking and incredible cooking. Is, is those little things. No, definitely. If you bake roast chicken in, in the simplest way and you can blow people away with first starting with a high quality chicken, maybe that you buy from the producer at a farmer's market, use good quality butter to roast it in. And then if you make the gravy and you add stock that you made from your last chicken, people will think you're like a genius chef because they won't have tasted something like that. You're so right. And it's, it's, it's simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it's as simple as, I know a lot of people buy roasted chickens at the grocery store or Costco. Great. You know, after you use the chicken, chuck the carcass in a, in a pot, cover it with water, simmer it for three hours, strain it, do the ice cream thing, the Todd, the Todd Sulkin special, and <laughs> it, it, you're, you're set. I mean, it's as simple as that. That is true. So one of the things I wanted to to not let you go without asking you about, though, is just giving us some hopeful perspective, because I think even for me, the hardest thing that I think about in doing these things is time. And I really want to try your carrot top things, but I can just see myself as I'm serving the kids carrot sticks and I've chopped those off, just feeling like I don't even have the time to organize them into the freezer. So how do you kind of counsel people of, of coping with that dichotomy? Well, let me start with a question. How often do you go grocery shopping? A lot. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Uh, Especially when I lived in New York, I was probably going three times, maybe four times a week. That's time. That, That takes time. Whether you're getting in a car or walking to the grocery store, that's, um, that's time wasted. You know, that's money wasted. Uh, what doesn't take time is going home after work, opening up your freezer, and seeing some stuff that you have in there, or looking in your fridge and taking full advantage of it. That does not take time. That takes some technique and t- takes some skill that, that most people need to learn um, and hopefully can, can get empowered by the book and the show. But it saves you time by cooking scrappy. You do not have to run around getting every last ingredient. It's not about that. It's about making the most of ingredients you already have. I'm not trying to turn anyone, you know, into a, onto a new cuisine. I'm not asking you to go find galangal ginger or lemongrass or fresh turmeric. I'm asking you to look at your carrot top. I'm asking you to look at your onion peel. These are things you already have. 
Um, and if you think about them differently, it's actually going to be more convenient for you. Okay, you've convinced me. I'm going to look at those carrot tops differently. And I, I know I do have room in my, my freezer because uh, I don't really like frozen food. So it only contains sort of leftovers. Yeah, and, and the fridge does a great job of that too. And to be honest, a lot of it's good at room temperature. So, you know, storage is a big piece of it, but um, not if you're kind of going through it all. I mean, think about it. If you make a potato leek soup and you have all the leek tops and you want to make breakfast for the kids in the morning, you could just saute the leek tops or you could go to the, to the grocery store and buy an onion or another leek, which makes more sense. I think people just didn't know that they could use the leak tops um, and that they're awesome. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's way more convenient and, uh, and saves a ton of time as it relates to life that. All right. You heard it here first. Okay. After the break, Joel's going to share his Julia moment. We'll be right back to hear that. Stay with us. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Joel, what's your Julia Moment? I, I have too many, Todd. All right. There, there is a scene in Jacques and Julia that I watched a number of years ago, um, and it was so funny. She, I think it was a piece of turkey. She tried it, and on camera, in front of Jacques, she said it was dry. And, you know, she gave all these tips about how to kind of rehydrate the turkey breast, but she said it was dry. Um, that's what I love about Julia. I mean, obviously, I love when she flipped an omelet and half of it ended up on the stove, and she puts it back in. But that moment is why I think I love Julia, why, you know, why I think the world loves Julia, is um, she, she, we trust her. She's us. You know, uh, no one has made the kitchen more approachable. It has been my life goal. It's why I wake up every morning, is to um, make the kitchen a place that anyone feels like they can go in and, and just do an incredible job. I think some of the best chefs in the world are not chefs. I think they're home cooks. And in some ways, I think they're rookie cooks, people trying new things and, and into it. And Julia knew that for anyone. And so that moment of, you know, where I think food TV is all about perfect. It's all about saving face. And Julia told Jacques Pepin on live TV <laughs> that the turkey was dry. That's what separates Julia from the rest of the world is that, uh, we trust her. Well, that's nice. Words to live by and, and an excellent point about Julia. And, and Julia would love any note about always keeping Jacques honest. That was one of her favorite activities. All right, Joel. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Todd, you're amazing. The whole foundation's incredible. And thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I, I, I feel much enlightened about uh, food waste, very much so. Fantastic. We'll keep it scrappy. We're going to do our best, and we're going to hopefully thank everyone for joining us today. Let us know how you're trying to tackle food waste and how maybe you're keeping it scrappy and cooking scrappy. So send us an email or even a voicemail uh, to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. The TV series is Scraps, now on A&E, hosted by Joel Gameron. Check your lo local listings for season two. 
The cookbook is Cooking Scrappy, 100 Recipes That Will Help You Save Money, Love What You Eat, and Stop Wasting Food, also by Joel Gameron, from Harper Wave, on sale October 9th at your favorite online retailer or local bookseller. If you want to follow Joel on social media, his handle is at Joel Gameron. It's, uh, Joel is J-O-E-L, and Gameron is G-A-M-O-R-A-N. And he's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with that handle. And you can also follow Scraps the Show on at Cook Scraps. And for more cooking scrappy tips and techniques, go to surlatob.com forward slash scraps. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.